Today's reading comes from 1 John, chapter 2, verses 18 to 27. Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now are many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us, for if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, eternal life. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as this anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Do please be seated and we shall pray. Heavenly Father, we pray now for the anointing of your Holy Spirit, that we might hear and abide in the truth of Jesus Christ, and so worship you acceptably. Oh, Father, please, would you write your word into our hearts uh, with the gentle and deep tool of your Holy Spirit. Please, would you bring us to a true knowledge of yourself, that we might share that truth which has set us free, we might see your praises redounding to the ends of the earth and to the ends of time. The great cry that Jesus Christ is Lord and Saviour. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, friends, I want to begin this morning by not starting in 1 John, but actually going back to John's Gospel. If you've got a Bible, uh, do turn to John chapter 4. It's on uh, page 1067 uh, of the Church Bibles. And the reason that we're doing that this morning uh, is because the questions that John addresses in his letter uh, assume certain things about where uh, we're all up to. Uh, and we may not all be in the same place. So I want to begin with John 4, which will show us what true worship is is what it means to know the truth, to have an anointing from the Holy One, and then we'll be ready to hear John's encouragement to stand firm in those things and to be warned about those who would endanger us. So uh, we haven't time this morning to read uh, the entire narrative, but I would encourage you, especially if you've never read it before, to read the story in John's Gospel, chapter 4, of the conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman who comes to him there. It's a, an extraordinary story, and it was extraordinary at the time. It seems to me extraordinarily relevant for the times in which we find ourselves today. Now, here is uh, a story uh, that reveals racial division and sexual sin and brokenness, just like the world in which we inhabit 
today. So if you're looking in John chapter 4, uh, look at verse 9. So uh, the situation here is Jesus uh, has uh, been out in, on a ministry trip, we might say. Uh, his uh, apostles, uh, his disciples have gone off to the nearest town uh, to buy some food. And Jesus is left uh, on his own uh, by a well in Samaria. So this is not in, uh, in Israel. This is in uh, north of Israel, away from the homeland uh, of the Jews. And a Samaritan woman comes up uh, to him, and uh, Jesus asks her for a drink. And the Samaritan woman says, verse 9, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And John explains in brackets, For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So here is a situation of racial division. Uh, We might also add uh, of gender division, far more profound uh, than we experience in our society uh, today. It was as shocking that Jesus was talking to a woman on his own as that he was talking to a Samaritan woman on her own. And so the the background to this story is one of racial conflict. Uh, The second part of the background is, of course, that of sexual sin and brokenness. Uh, Jesus, later on in the conversation, uh, asks the woman to go and call her husband. Well, he knows her domestic situation because he's the Lord in the flesh. Uh, And she replies, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say that you you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Here is a woman who is a prolific sexual sinner. She's had five failed marriages, and she's now shacked up with another man, and they've not even bothered to go through uh, the legal formalities of a marriage. Well, again, that doesn't take much uh, to draw the connections with our own society, does it? Uh, A society that is not only broken sexually, but celebrates and is proud of its defiance Uh, against the creator and his ways for sexual intimacy. So what does the Son of God do when he comes to a world that is broken according to race uh, and defiant and ruined by its sexual sin? Look at verse 14, uh, where Jesus uh, speaks to this woman about water in various ways, and they're talking about the physical well that they're near. Uh, And Jesus says, verse 13, everyone who drinks this water, that is the water from the physical well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will, will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So Jesus says, to you who are divided, to you who are rebellious and broken, come to me and find satisfying, life-giving, cleansing water. It's not a word of condemnation here. That doesn't mean that there is acceptance or a celebration of sin. No, far from it. Rather, there is the offer of forgiveness and new life. And a new unity in Jesus Christ and him alone as well. Jesus comes to someone who has discovered the dry and dusty reality of rejecting God and of living uh, in antagonism with their neighbors. He offers to that person and to all of us as well a new and living way. Forgiveness, a new start, a fresh beginning, an inward renewal, and a cancellation 
of every debt of sin that stood against us. It's no surprise that this woman then takes a little while really to grasp the dimensions of God's grace that she's just been personally offered by grace in the flesh. But she gets there. Indeed, we touched on this story uh, last week. She goes and tells her townsfolk, uh, fellow townsfolk, the story of the man who told her everything she ever did and yet who loved her and accepted her and renewed her. And they go on as they meet Jesus for themselves to testify that he really is the savior of the world. Before we get to that part of the story, Jesus makes one of his most important theological pronouncements anywhere in his teaching. And it's the background to what we will get to, uh, the Lord helping us, uh, in John's first letter. But it's worth noting that he makes this theological pronouncement to a woman, to a foreign woman, and a sinful foreign woman. Extraordinary, isn't it? Uh, as the grace of God is here manifested. Well, here we are in John 4, verse 19. I'll just read this section. It's important for us. So the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, uh, but you Jews claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. What an extraordinary moment that uh, is. But you see, the Father is seeking worshippers. And worshippers, not just from the native born and decent, although you are welcome too. Uh, This follows the account of Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, who was the opposite of this woman at every turn, uh, a righteous Jewish man at the heart of the religious establishment. He's welcome too if he would be born again. The Father is also seeking worshippers from the foreigners, from the sinners, from the stranger, from those whose lives are broken. Even when that brokenness is entirely or even largely their own fault. Remember who Jesus entrusts this great revelation to. This broken, sinful woman, this foreigner at the well, who has now come to receive the living water that he offers to her and therefore, in principle, to absolutely everyone. There is no one so far away uh, by uh, ethnic uh, descent. There is no one who is so far away uh, by sin that the living water of Jesus will not reach to even you. You are one of those from among whom the Father is seeking worshippers, worshippers in spirit and truth. So come, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Don't imagine ever that you're so far away that this gospel will not reach you. If it reached her, it can reach you. And when we do discover this, then what do we find? Well, not only a personal forgiveness, but we find a new identity among a renewed people. A people in whom the most important divisions are no longer what defined us 
before we came to Christ. Whether that was a lifestyle we lived or an ethnicity that we still have, now our new unity that we find is now in Christ and in him alone. And so that in John's last work, the great vision that God gives him in the last book of the Bible, uh, the vision is of a people from every tribe and language and nation and tongue who gather around the throne of Jesus to praise him into all eternity. Because wherever we were from, we are now in him and we'll be in him uh, when the last day comes and we go into all eternity to praise him forever. We will come now to worship in spirit and truth and that will endure into the eternity that is to come across every divide that formerly used to separate us from our fellow human beings. So come and join in Christ this one family that God is making. We come and we worship in spirit and in truth. That is, in spirit, um, we receive an anointing. That's the language John will use in his letter. Uh, we worship God in spirit because the spirit comes and anoints us. Or in the language John has just used, or Jesus has used in John 3, he brings us to new birth. We cannot change our own hearts. Nobody else can change them for us, but God can. And to worship God in spirit is to confess that only by the spirit, through that anointing and the rebirth, can we be brought into God's own family. And we worship in truth. That is, we believe who Jesus is. And how do we have access to who Jesus is? Through this word, through the word that the apostles were given by him, so that we worship him according to the truth that is here as well, truth that brings us to confess Christ and to know who he is, worship that is enabled by the Spirit who anoints us. We worship the Father in spirit and in truth. But say you're just believed that for the first time this morning, and perhaps there are some. I've heard of some who have become Christians even this week uh, from within the wider uh, circuit of our church. Maybe this is your first Sunday as someone who really has begun to worship in spirit and truth. Certainly many of us will remember uh, when we first became Christians, those of us who came from non-Christian backgrounds. I remember as a 19-year-old becoming a Christian and uh, the joy of it and then needing to join a church. Uh, And uh, I was at university, the students went to many different churches uh, and so I thought, well, I'd do my homework and I'd decide I would join a, a church that was faithful to the Bible. Uh, so I read the 39 articles of religion of the Church of England. I wasn't entirely normal then any more than I am now. Uh, not many of my fellow students did that. But I read those 39 articles and I discovered in there that the Church of England, at its core, at its foundation, is a gospel-preaching, biblically-faithful church. So I put my Bible under my arm and I went off uh, to the local parish church. I went to my first Bible study and I should have realized that when no one else brought a Bible, uh, there was maybe a sign that uh, not everyone in the Church of England stood uh, where uh, its foundations would encourage them to. And I couldn't work out why the people in this church I went to were so antagonistic uh, to this young man who was so full of the joy of newfound faith and wanted to look at the Bible and devour it uh, because it had come to life in me. I I now know, 26 years into ordained ministry, that it was what we call a liberal Catholic parish, and uh, they didn't really take Bible seriously um, 
uh, the Bible study uh, didn't assume quite the same place or was not at least approached in the same way uh, as we would. And then I looked a little more into the history of the Church of England and I discovered that the man who substantially wrote the 39 articles that brought the Church of England back to her biblical foundations had been executed by the Church for his faithfulness to the Bible on the 21st of March, 1556. And it hasn't surprised me that things really haven't improved ever since then in the Church of England. But there we go. I'm still here. But why not? And what does it mean, you see, not just for us to start out like that woman did on that glorious day by the well to worship the Father and Spirit and truth, but what does it mean to continue to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And that's where, finally, we're ready to turn to uh, for John's first letter. Um, I, I hope uh, that what you're seeing on the screen uh, is God is spirit, his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. Uh, but in Cantonese, uh, it may say, please do not copy anything from this website without permission. Uh, I really have no way of telling. But uh, I hope it uh, says God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth, because that's what Jesus says we must do. But as we continue in that, how do we persevere, not just on the first flush of faith, but through the months, the years, the decades, and all the way to the end of our days? And that is what John is addressing in his letter. So do come with me to 1 John chapter 2 from verse uh, 18 uh, through to 27. And we won't go through it uh, in uh, the detail. We sometimes uh, would, uh, but we'll begin at the beginning. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. So we're in the last hour. Uh, We've been in the last hour ever since Jesus returned to heaven at the ascension. It's not a literal hour, obviously, otherwise the Bible would never have been written and 2,000 years would not have passed. But it's the last hour in this sense. The next event on the timescale of God's saving plan is the day of judgment, the day when Jesus Christ will return as the judge of the living and the dead. And the present heavens and earth uh, will be destroyed by fire, and there will be a new heavens and a new earth, the home of righteousness. And we quibble and say, well, why do we say, uh, use the language of the last hour uh, or the nearness, as you find throughout the New Testament, of that day? Well, let me just say this to you. If you're planning something significant, I don't know, like getting married, uh, for example, uh, then even when that day is perhaps 18 months away, does it feel like that? Or actually, are you thinking about it every day? Because that's the next big event, the mind-filling event in your collective lives. We know the reality, don't we, when there's something huge coming up. We're getting married. We've got an exam. Whatever it is, there's some big thing, and it seems to be constantly near us, even though the calendar says it's still some time away. Well, that's the same, but profoundly more importantly so with Jesus' return. It is the next event in God's calendar. It is for what we long if we are Christian people for his coming and his appearing. And we live in the days 
which may end on Tuesday or may go on for another 10,000 years. I don't know. You don't know. Even Jesus says only the Father knows. But the point is, it's the next big event, and we need to be ready. And that last hour is the time in which we live. John lived in it. We lived in it. And we will be living in it until Jesus comes again. And John says that one of the marks of living in the last hour is that there are many antichrists that are now active, not just out there in the world, but even within the visible church. There will be an antichrist, he says. Uh, Paul calls him the man of lawlessness, uh, some character uh, who will come just before the very end actually comes. We don't need to concern ourselves with him any more than John does here. No, what he says actually is the reality is that now many antichrists have come. And indeed that the churches are awash uh, with them. And their presence is evidence that the coming of Jesus is near. That's what Jesus himself said, Matthew 24. What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Jesus said, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. Many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. So we live in the times that Jesus warned us that there would be many people who would claim to be telling you the truth of God about Jesus, but who actually were imposters, anti-Christs. So how do we spot them? when they come, that we might continue to worship the Father in the Spirit. You see, Christ just means anointed one. Jesus is the anointed one. The Holy Spirit anointed him, and we who worship the Father in spirit are also anointed by the Holy Spirit that we may worship the Father. So the antichrists are the anti-anointed ones. They are anti, therefore, both Christ himself, the anointed one, but they also antagonize and oppose those who are themselves followers of Christ, that is, believers. They are anti the Christians as well as anti-Christ himself. And the first mark of them is that they depart and that they try and take others with them. Look at verse 19. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. As Paul said to the elders of the church in Ephesus, even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. And as John puts it here uh, in verse 26, I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. So these are not just the people who get bored with a certain church and then leave uh, and give evidence, uh, not that they're antichrist, but rather that they have an immature faith uh, that will not persevere uh, in sustained church membership. Uh, enduring the reality of church life, that forgiveness is often required, uh, that no vicar is perfect, and a hundred other things that mark the reality of life in any normal church. No, John is talking about those who depart because they want to draw away disciples after them. Uh, Just should say as a a footnote here, uh, the only really good ways to leave a church are to be sent onward in ministry or upward in glory. Uh, Other than that, you probably ought to just work through whatever it is uh, that you're finding uh, currently is uh, not entertaining you or engaging you uh, sufficiently. 
but we'll come back to that another day. The point about these ones is that they leave and try and draw others uh, with them. Uh, And they try to draw others with them according to this new teaching, or rather uh, old teaching, because it is simply a denial. It's a negative and destructive thing. Verse 22, who is the liar? Uh, It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges this as the, the Son has the Father also. So what does it mean to really worship the Father and to continue to do so? It means we receive Jesus. We acknowledge him as the Son of God. And that means people who may wear dog collars and sound plausible and have degrees from theological colleges who talk about worshiping God, but perhaps doing so via many religious paths, are what John would call an antichrist. Just let that sink in for a moment. If you deny that the Son is really God in the flesh, the only Savior, the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, if you deny that while maintaining a language of God and faith and church and Jesus, well, then you're the antichrist. See why? We need some teaching on this, can't we? Because so often these people are deeply plausible. And over 20 centuries, such antichrists have come, and the more famous ones have started their own enduring cults. Take Joseph Smith and the Mormons, or rather larger and more enduring, Muhammad and the Muslims. Both men began with some sort of acknowledgement of the Christian scriptures. But both men denied, amongst other things, the unique status of Jesus as the Christ, the anointed one, to whom we owe unqualified obedience and the son to whom we owe undivided worship. Both men have apparently respectful things to say about Jesus and both explicitly deny and oppose the central truths about his person and work. To quote the Quran, Christ Jesus, the son of Mary, was no more than an apostle of Allah. No more than an apostle. That's the testimony of the Antichrist. So these are real. We need to be ready and we need to see them because they arise in every generation of the church. Why? Because it makes the gospel so much easier if it doesn't have solid boundaries at the end. Jesus Christ is the only Savior. He is God in the flesh. You must come to him or you will not be saved. There will always be those whose itching ears want to hear an easier message. But John, the eyewitness of Jesus, says this, No one who denies the Son has the Father. And Jesus himself says, No one comes to the Father except through me. Don't listen to the Antichrists. Well, let's end positively. You have an anointing. Jesus, uh, John is writing to normal Christians not writing to a subset of super uh, Christians. Uh, He's writing to faithful believers who are just trying to get on with worshiping the Father in spirit and in truth. And he says to them, and it's unusual language, I wonder if any of us would have thought, well, I have an anointing from the Father, not in the sense that that makes me different to other Christians, but that that's who I am as a Christian believer. Well, John says that's our language, that's our inheritance. We should claim it and own it. You have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth, he says. 
I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it. And no lie comes from the truth. That woman at the well in Samaria had an anointing because she came to believe in Jesus and bore witness that the Holy Spirit had brought her to new birth. Do you trust Jesus in the midst of your own failures, in the midst of your own heartache? Thinking, I get it wrong so often, and yet, Lord Jesus, will you forgive me today? Well, then John says, this is you. You have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know the truth. The Holy One, remember, is the anointed one. So uh, that spirit with whom Jesus was filled uh, now comes to fill you as well. Rivers of living water that well up in him and overflow to us who believe in him. We have an anointing. We know the truth. Uh, Jesus, uh, John also uh, says this in this same uh, section. Uh, Not only do we have an anointing, but we know the truth. We've heard the truth and we've received the truth. So often Christians divide what God unites. The work of the Holy Spirit, uh, the work of the word of God. And John says you can't ever deny those or divide those because the Father is seeking worshippers in spirit and in truth. That is the inward work that only God can do by his spirit is done through this word that we receive and believe and treasure. And what must we do, therefore, in a world, or rather in a church, that so often faces many antichrists? Well, John says, remain. Remain in the word of God. Uh, remain in the spirit of God. See that what you've heard from the beginning, that's the word, remains in you. If this word remains in you, then you will remain in the Son and in the Father. And as for you, verse 27, the anointing you received from him remains in you. You don't need anyone to teach you because God himself has revealed the truth of his Son in your lives. And no one can take that from you. Don't be deceived by empty words. So, which is it? Word or spirit? Yes, both, always. Because we worship in spirit and truth. So we remain in the teaching. We remain in the anointing. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do some of you need to rekindle that living relationship with God and his word? The anointing is within you. Never think that you can bring yourself into the kingdom of God. It is the anointing of God that brings you in and the anointing of God that is freely available to those who will come to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your Father is seeking those who will worship in spirit and in truth. And we pray, Lord, that you would make us such people. Would you give us or assure us that we have the anointing of your spirit? We are children of your heavenly Father by grace and adoption. Please, would you renew in us our devotion to, our surrender to, our delight in the teaching that we have received is within these 66 books of the scriptures that we may be people of word and spirit now and always and so stand firm until the end.
We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.